Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good evening. Greetings and salutations from the great state of Alabama. Hope everyone had a great Lord today. Good opportunity to go worship the Lord on this beautiful Sunday. Hey, uh, still figuring all these things out. I noticed last week we had a kind of a, um, I don't know, buzzing sound in the microphone on the Facebook Live part of it. Because <clears throat> I actually use two different microphones for the phone that goes to Facebook Live. And then I record on a separate phone for the audio. So I'm trying a different microphone uh, tonight for the Facebook Live part. So you'll see two redneck microphone situations set up here on my little boom. But that's okay. We'll figure something out. One of these days I'll get sophisticated enough I can figure out how to get what I need to hook uh, hook the sound up to uh, both of these phones or either come up with a different way to do these things. But until then, hey, we just do the best we can. So uh, tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20, the millennium and the final judgment. And as always... Uh, we will put this up on YouTube, Rumble, and on the podcast. Podcast is RK Ministries. You can find that anywhere podcasts are available. Uh, it's also on Spotify. It's a podcast uh, for Spotify. Uh, I have a podcast page. If you'll go to that page, you can just Google it and find it. Uh, and uh, there's a place on there for support if you want to support. Uh, if not, just listen, subscribe, share. Uh, that's the big thing subscribe and share and then the same thing on on uh, YouTube and rumble go find my YouTube and rumble pages and subscribe and share and hit the like button uh, and uh, that way we can keep growing the audience and reaching those people maybe who uh, do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior so, uh, I'm going to read the text as always. You remember that very first beatitude we came to in the book of Romans, is, or Revelation, rather, is uh, blessed is the one who reads this prophecy or reads this book, or reads it aloud, and then uh, obeys what is therein, or who hears it to. Uh, so, let's read chapter 20. Just by the way, before we get into chapter 20, uh, so 20, the, tonight we've got two more Sundays. Uh, two more chapters in Revelation. And so from there, I think I may have already told you, but from there we're going to go to the book of Ex, uh, not Exodus, uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, I had a good friend of mine send uh, that request to me. And so I think that's the direction we're going to go after we leave Revelation. Let's do uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon those many years ago. So, now let's get back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer 
until the thousand years was ended, or were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw, this is verse 4, a, uh, and I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Thus is the, or this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will, uh, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them uh, for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, the beast uh, and sulfur where the beast and the prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. No, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to that which, or excuse me, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus ends the reading of God's word, and may God bless the reading of his word. All right, so a lot of things to talk about in this chapter. And we, we could have probably slowed Revelation down quite a bit and, and uh, went through it more meticulously. But, as always, I thought I, the way I've come at Revelation is looking at Revelation as a picture book and not a puzzle book. And I think that's sometimes that's where we get off track when we try to look at Revelation as a puzzle book. And then we try to go in and meticulously piece together all the puzzles as it relates to our anachronistic understanding of history as we impose it upon what God's word is saying. And I think what God is doing in Revelation is showing us the grand picture of his eternal scheme or his eternal plan rather and the unfolding of redemptive history leading to 
to the culmination of the age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the primary purpose of Revelation is to remind us that no matter what it looks like in this world, no matter what the circumstances in this world appear to be, that God is on his throne. Caesar's not on, in control. God is in control. Your governor, my governor is not in control. God is in control. The president of the United States is not in control. God is in control. Uh, King Charles over there, uh, obviously he's not in control, uh, but any monarch, they're not in control. God is on enthroned, no matter what it looks like in this world. And there's not a, a leader on this planet that has ever existed or risen to power that hadn't got there because God allowed them to get there. And that's really the encouragement of Revelation. God's enthroned right now. And he is ruling and reigning right now. Christ is at the right hand of the Father, right? And he is, the, every nation is called to be in subjection to him. Thus, every individual in every a, a nation has been called by God, commanded by God to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And the problem is that the nations, like in Psalm 2, want to cast off the restraints of God and want to cast off God and, and come out from under the authority uh, of God and go their own way and they have done that for the great greater part of human history right uh, most individuals have rebelled are in a state of rebellion against God and chapter 20 kind of brings us uh, again to this point of judgment in a in a very concise way and, and you're going to see I'm going to talk a little bit about it in this chapter this idea of recapitulation because I think every one of these visions are telling us the same story from a slightly different perspective and if we look at revelation in that way in my opinion it seems to fit together nicely and we understand the visions in my opinion better because they're all telling us the same thing and they're telling us that god is in control and they're all bring us to the same point of history human history to the culmination of the age and every one of these major visions in revelation we have seen the culmination of an age of the age from a slightly different aim goal a slightly different perspective or different vantage point and so tonight I, I think in revelation 20 we we see a very similar a similar thing so let's get in uh to revelation 20 the first section of verses one through three that uh, satan bound and so obviously coming at this chapter or coming at this book from the eschatology of or eschatological view of amillennialism then Revelation 20 is a big deal because I got to explain to the best of my ability how I deal with Revelation 20 and this idea of a thousand year millennial reign of Christ because obviously there are three um, major eschatological views of Revelation that deal with the millennium. Uh, you got the, the pre-tribular dispensationalism, uh, pre pre-tribulation uh, return of Christ and that millennial reign of Christ in that context. And then you've got post-millennialism as it deals with the issue of the return of Christ at the end of the millennium. So how does that look when it talks about ruling and reigning uh, with Christ? Whereas in dispensationalism or the pre-trib, uh, pre-millennialism, uh, obviously Christ comes, establishes earthly throne, a thousand year reign, Satan's released, of the battle of Armageddon, it, it, Christ conquers and it's all done. You have a new earth. Uh, then in post-millennialism, uh, the earth continually gets better and better in the sense of, of 
the changing, more Christianized, I guess you could say. Uh, people, more and more people begin to come to Christ and come to faith until, until such time that the earth is, is um, as Christianized as it's going to be, I guess you could say, and Christ returns at the end of the millennium. And then you have all millennialism. Uh, in all millennialism, people get uh, misunderstand just the the title of it because all is a negation, the a, the alpha, a negation, and in in a quite literal sense, the word would mean n not or no millennium. But that's really not what all millennialism believes. All millennium, a better a better understanding of all millennialism is millennium now, and we'll bear that out as we go through here. In that Christ is ruling and reigning right now in this moment this is the millennial reign of christ and he will return at the at the consummation of the age he will come again at the end of end of the age and amillennialism like premillennialism has a similar outlook on human history to the point of christ's return uh, whereas premillennialism sees it in the great tribulation aspect where during those seven years of tribulation the church is has been uh raptured off of the earth and the spirit of god in that sense has been taken away from the earth so that men uh, the full capacity of men's depravity is seen on this planet and uh, that's when the antichrist rises up and people begin to follow the mark follow the antichrist and so it's a terrible time and then at the end of that terrible time christ comes again uh defeats Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and brings judgment on this world and establishes uh, his uh, kingdom forever in the in the sense of new heaven, new earth. Uh, and he rules and reigns in that thousand year, literal thousand years. And all millennialism sees a similar historical aspect in the relation in the in the idea that humanity is not going to get better and better. Humanity is going to continue down the depraved uh, course that it is on until Christ comes again. We will continue to see sinfulness and debauchery and in ramping up and increasing persecution and tribulation upon the church by the spirit of this age until Christ comes again to bring judgment, defeat Satan, and so on and so forth. Whereas postmillennialism, again, there really is in a sense i guess is kin to our millennialism and that christ is reigning currently in the hearts of believers but it's it, it there there is no demise of humanity it, it gets better and better until christ comes so anyway that's where we come from our millennialism is not no millennium it's the millennium is now christ is reigning in this moment the already not yet aspect of uh redemptive history we've talked about that before already christ is reigning but not yet have we seen the full uh culmination of that reign of christ which we will see when he comes again so that's how we're coming at this and so we see satan bound so we got to ask these questions what what is this thousand years is literal symbolic what does it mean when satan is bound for this thousand years uh and and uh uh, so how do we deal with that aspect of Christ reigning and believers reigning in this thousand years? So let's take it verse at a time and, and go through it or paragraph at a time. Uh, so John begins this vision the same way he begins a lot of visions. Then I saw, uh, and you know that he's entering into a new aspect of vision. Sometimes it's a brand new vision altogether, and sometimes it's a carryover from one vision into a different aspect of the same vision. Uh, and some people say that 17 through 20 really are uh, all, uh, should be 
grouped together uh, in, in a visionary sense. But nonetheless, he sees this, at least this is, this is at least another aspect of this vision that he has been seeing. I, I think it's uh, a slightly different a uh, aspect of what we just saw in Revelation chapter 19. Because of this battle of Armageddon at the end, and a similar thing we saw in chapter 16, because we see the mention of this battle of Armageddon there again in chapter 16. Uh, then I saw an, an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. We've seen this angel before. Uh, and that's not to say that there, you, you might not be able to make an argument that it was a different angel, but it would seem to me that if we want to stay consistent that we've seen this angel before that has this key to the bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 9, we saw this angel come and open up this pit, and out from the pit uh, came those hideous-looking, demonic, monstrous beasts uh, that uh, wreaked havoc on, on the world. Uh, Revelation 9, 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw uh, a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So this angel was given that key, and here it is the one who, uh, in his hand, he has the key. So I think it's the same angel that we see coming to uh, deal with this bottomless pit. And this angel comes, and he seizes the dragon. Now we know the dragon, the devil, Satan, he tells us here, the, the serpent who is the devil and Satan. So we know this is the same one we have encountered in Revelation chapter 12. We saw this dragon, this serpent, this devil. Uh, we see the serpent in Genesis chapter 1. So all the way to Genesis chapter 1, Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, here in Revelation uh, 20 and verse 2, it's the same scene, right? We see the, the Satan. We see the dragon. We see um, the devil himself involved in human history in trying to thwart God's plan. And so this this dragon, this ancient serpent, uh, devil, the Satan, Satan, he is seized. And then this angel bound him for a thousand years. And so there, there's the first element of the situation that an amillennialist has to deal with is what does this binding mean? And is this thousand years a literal thousand years? Well, we'll deal with the thousand years first. I think I got it opposite in my notes, but obviously we have made the case through Revelation that the numbers in Revelation are always, not sometimes, always symbolic. <clears throat> We've seen it from the number three. Uh, we've seen it from the number four. Four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth. Uh, we've seen it from the number seven. Yeah, seven is perfection, completion in a sense too. We've seen it from the number 10, which I think is a, is a derivative of this uh, or makes up this thousand and we'll explain that in a second uh when a 10 again has to do with the idea of completeness or totality and then we see it in the number 12 uh we s obviously the 12 prophets the 12 apostles we see derivatives of in the 24 elders 12 times or 12 plus 12 uh we see it in the 144,000 right which are all 
aspects of the number 12 in multiples. And so the same thing is going on here with 1,000. If all the numbers in Revelation have been symbolic, then it would stand to reason that this number would also be symbolic. And you find people like Mounts, who is not amillennial. He is, he is not, not dispensational either. But <clears throat> he still does not view this millennial as a literal thousand years. And so it's kind of hard to come to Revelation 20. And while all the other numbers in there are symbolic, and most people would not even try to make those numbers literal, then we come to Revelation 20 and we want to make a thousand years a literal number when every other number in the book is always symbolic and so i think this is a symbolic number it's a 10 cubed really uh, 100 times 10 however you want to put it it's it's a, it's a dividend of 10 a multiple of 10 <clears throat> and it, it has to do with the idea of completeness and fullness so it's not necessarily a literal thousand years and that's why i believe we can look at these other aspects of this millennial in somewhat of a symbolic nature because we're not talking i don't think we're talking about a literal thousand years i think what most people who come from it from my perspective believe that the millennial the middle this millennial reign is and again we'll hit that in a moment this millennial reign is is the age between christ's first advent and christ's second advent that's why amillennialism is better understood as millennium now because amillennialists believe that the millennium of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ is going on right now. It started in the incarnation in his first advent and it will be completed in the second advent, his return at the culmination of the age. And so then that leads to this next idea of Satan being bound. So what does it mean that Satan is bound? We read in here, he bound him with a chain. He put him in the bottom, in this pit. Uh, and he's to be sealed in that pit for a thousand years. Well, again, you know, this word, again, you have to look at the symbolism. And you, you can make your own decisions on this. I, I'm no, no, nowhere uh, do I ever claim to be the end all be on all authority on the book of Revelation. And if there's somebody who says they are, then you probably should quit listening to them. But I think, again, this binding of Satan in the sense that you read in Revelation in some, is, is real and symbolic. Because I don't think Satan is bound necessarily with a literal chain and cast into a literal pit. Some, like Beale, in his commentary, look at this as say, as the pit, at least, being that realm in which the supernatural uh, forces uh, function. And so, and they see Satan's falling and Satan's binding. Uh, Satan falling in his binding as being uh, in correlation with one another. And we read several aspects of this concept of Satan's being bound or at least alluded to in other parts of the New Testament uh, so that his binding in a sense is 
his authority being limited, his ability to, to deceive the nations being limited. Not that he can't do anything, but he can only do those things that God allows him to do. And that binding ultimately transpired with Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. A couple of passages, well, there's four or five passages that'll help us understand this. First, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So in some element, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, right? When God the Father says to Eve that I'm putting enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent, the serpent will bruise his heel, meaning the Messiah, the seed of Eve that was going to come, that promised seed. And then the, the seed of Eve is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And so it's at the cross, it's at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3. And we see the author of Hebrews tell us that as well. And then you have Paul in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, and again, this is dealing with Christ's substitutionary atonement. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He talks about his uh, atoning sacrifice, his um, expiation in the sacrifice of Christ, the covering aspect of his, his atoning death for us and the shedding of his blood. He goes on to say that uh, he, he counseled this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So again, it's tied back to this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to, to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in Christ, Satan and his minions have been defeated have been put to an open shame he he disarmed whatever authority and whatever ability they had they they cannot do anything not that they ever could but they can definitely not do anything they're limited in their authority and power unless god allows them to do something so in that sense i think we see this binding of satan tied to the death burial and resurrection of christ again then john chapter uh, 12 verse 31 now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And of course, you know, Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 12, I believe it's the next verse in verse 32, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And then he goes on, to, John goes on to explain what he's talking about is the kind of death by which he will die, the death on the cross. So again, this this. Uh, judgment of the world and this casting out of the ruler of this world, Satan himself, this binding of Satan, I believe, is tied to the, res the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then uh, lastly is, is Matthew 12, 27 through 29, a couple of ver three verses there, two verses there. 
And if, one, two, three verses, and if cast out demons, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, this is Jesus speaking, by whom your sons cast, by whom do your sons cast out demons? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh, I can't even read. Let me start over. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. But if if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his good? And here's the pertinent part of this passage. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And so again, I think it is Satan's been bound by the authority of Christ, particularly through his death, burial, and resurrection, I believe. And in that sense, Satan can no longer deceive the nations as he had uh, the ability to do prior to that event in history. And there is, according to our passage in Revelation, going to come a time in the future where that limitation on Satan is removed and he again is able to deceive the nations in full uh, capacity to bring about the culmination of the age. So I think that just like the millennium is now, Christ is ruling and reigning right now through we, his people who are a kingdom of priests, right? And we are ruling and reigning in Christ. We are his emissaries in this world. He is, he is enthroned right now today. We don't have to wait. Now, yes, he is coming again. He will sit on, as it were, the throne of David in the new heavens and the new earth and that new Jerusalem in the city of God where God will be our God and we will be his people. But that doesn't limit the idea that he is reigning right now. He is. He has all authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So he's ruling and reigning in this moment. And one day that what is in a spiritual sense will become a physical sense as well as his physical presence will be among his people on this earth. So that's my understanding of this thousand years and the, and the binding of, of Satan. And again, a lot smarter people than I have have studied and taught the book of Revelation. So uh, I would yield to their, to their authority and you make your own decision on that. But if I'm going to be consistent in my eschatology, and until I see something in scripture that will change my understanding of eschatology, uh, that, that's where I've got to be. Now, that leads to this idea of the resurrection. <clears throat> and quite honestly, I'll be quite honest, when I get to the, this resurrection, now I, I depart a little bit from those who are amillennial, uh, because amillennialism or amillennialist in general, see this resurrection that we see in beginning in verse four or in verses four to six, they see it again as a spiritual resurrection only in particular of those martyrs uh, that were beheaded for Christ. And we see that if you read that text, you exactly can come away with that idea because it talks about those who were martyred for Christ because of his testimony. They were beheaded because of the testimony of Christ. And it talks about them being part of this first resurrection. 
And the implication that all millennialists make generally is that the rest of the dead that's mentioned in this passage includes even Mounts, who's not an all millennialist, sees this same, <clears throat> uh, sees it in a similar way that these, the rest of the dead are all of those who are remain dead in Christ, uh, apart from these martyrs, and then the horde of lost people who have died uh, without Christ, all of them will be raised as the rest of uh, the dead. And again, I take a little bit different approach to that because I, I think the Bible clearly teaches there are only two resurrections. And we'll talk about that as we get in. So let, let me work through it and, and I'll try to flesh that out as as we go because I, I believe the first resurrection, yes, includes those martyrs, but ultimately includes everyone who, is, who has died in Christ. And then the rest of the dead are the ones we read about when we get to the end of this chapter who, uh, who are not written, whose names are not found written in the book of life. So uh, he goes on to say, then I saw, and so again, you see how John starts this paragraph. <clears throat> it's a different aspect or different phase of this vision. I think the first vision, uh, the first aspect of this vision, it's a spiritual aspect in a sense, but it is impacting what's happening on earth. Now it looks like he has a peek into the heavenlies and these thrones that he sees uh, there, but I, I think these visions are, are interlocked, okay? Uh, not that they're completely separate, but anyway, we know this is a different scene in this vision because he says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And, and now this idea of the authority to judge, uh, the SV puts it that way. It depends on your translation. It may be a variation in, in how it's worded in the English based on the translation that you have. And really, I think probably a better way of thinking about that text, although I love the SV, but I think there's a better way to look at it, mainly based on the language that is there. And so it starts with the conjunction chi, which is and, just like, you know, we we don't see that necessarily in there other than the very first part of the phrase in the English in the ESV. But it's and, and then you got uh, crema, which is a word that has to do with judgment. Judgment, and it's in the noun form. So crema. And then you have edothe, uh, or edothe is a short O in, in the Greek, but edothe. And edothe comes from, it's, it's, a, it's one of those weird configurations of, of a word in the Greek, and it comes from the word didomai. And didomai means to give, uh, as in giving a gift or giving something to someone. And so, quite literally, the, the very wooden rendering of it would be, and judgment was given to them. So, in one sense, you can look at it in that they were given, as the SV translates it, the authority to judge. But I think, based on other things I've read about this phrase and this verse, it makes sense that 
it would seem that this gift was being given to them. In other words, judgment was being made for them on their behalf. And the reason I say that is because of the 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 verb. The verb is an aorist tense verb, and an aorist is just a simple past. Uh, it just means that something has happened, and it's in the uh, passive. Uh, voice and passive mean it's something that is done to you 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 don't do it yourself you, you, the ball you were hit by the ball you didn't hit the ball you were hit by the ball and then it's indicative indicative is just a statement of truth or, or fact and so it's a passive thing so in that sense it is something that is quite literally to the rendering given to them and so i think that a better way to look at it is judgment in the sense that they were judged and judgment was given in their favor. Not because of who they were, but because of who Christ is, right? It's because of that testimony, because of their relationship with Christ, that judgment was given in their favor rather than against them. And it goes back to this idea of vindication. So if you think about it, and it may be, and we can make the correlation from recapitulation, uh, you know, telling the same story in different perspectives, that these may be the same exact martyrs that we saw in chapter 6 under the throne who had been beheaded because of their testimony in Christ. And their question to God, as they were sitting under that throne or in the presence of that throne were, was, how long is it going to be before you vindicate us? And then the Lord says to them, when the rest of your brothers and sisters who are going to be martyred are martyred, then I will bring judgment and vindicate you. And so that sense, I think this judgment was passed for them. And we've seen that same element over and over again uh, through these visions that it seems as though this judgment of God being poured out is closely related to that prayer from those martyrs in Revelation chapter 6. And so you can go back and listen again and see how we talked about that throughout, throughout the book. So in that sense, that's what I understand this idea of, of this judgment that he's talking to there. And he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And so they were martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And those who had not worshipped the beast uh, or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And remember, we've talked about this idea of the mark of the beast in relation to the the uh, sealing of God's people. Both of them indicate a, a mark of sorts, a seal uh, as a sign that we belong to God, or a mark as it relates to people who have bowed the knee or belong to the spirit of this age. It's not necessarily a literal thing that you can see on someone's forehead or someone's hand. We talked about how it's really ultimately, have you capitulated to the spirit of this age and bowed your knee to the spirit of this age 
Have you have you followed after that rather than following after Christ? Or ha have you bowed your knee to Christ? That's what Revelation is ultimately about, two groups of people, those who have bowed the knee to Christ and those who have not. Those who are sealed of God because they have bowed the knee to Christ and those who ha are sealed in their fate who have followed after the spirit of this, this age. And so in that sense, it's a distinction distinction between two groups of people and we talked about that and you can go read again or listen again dealing with the mark of the beast and and how uh, that controlling element of uh, this spirit of the age could be implemented uh, upon people to coerce them to bow the knee uh, to to satan in the spirit of this of this age all right, and he goes on to say uh, that these will reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years. And again, that's another tough spot. If you're going to be an all-millennial, believe it's millennial now, uh, you know, and we see these who are in the heavenlies, who are the martyrs. Well, the Bible here says, you know, at first glance, you're going to say, hey, these are souls that are up there. But the Bible calls this a resurrection. Now, in one sense, all millennials, as I've already said, look at it more of a, as a spiritual aspect of resurrection that you have when we come to faith in Christ. And you can make an argument for this. I don't think that's what this, talking, this is talking about, but I would not go so far as to say that they are absolutely wrong. It's just this is the way I see and understand it based on my understanding of the rest of Scripture at this moment is you can make this argument of a spiritual resurrection in the resurrection in this way <clears throat> that when we are described as human beings as being dead in sins dead in our trespasses and sins not not that we're just maimed by our trespasses and sin we are pictured as a dead corpse now, unlike those who picture uh, humanity as the helpless person who is drowning in the sea and they are about to go under for the third time and you throw them the life preserver and it is their responsibility to reach up and grab the life preserver is their choice. That's the way most of evangelicalism in this world, at least in America, presents the state of humanity as it relates to uh, our depravity and redemption. But the Bible says something totally different. The Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were like Lazarus dead in the tomb. We, we cannot, we're at the bottom of the ocean, as, as James White says, and the sharks are eating our flesh. We, we can't do anything. It's, it's all of God and none of us. <clears throat> so in that sense, if you see, the, I think, the true biblical anthropology that we are dead in our trespasses and sin spiritually then when we come to faith in christ it is in fact a spiritual resurrection that we are raised from the dead and brought to life new life in christ through redemptive history so or through redemption in us so you can make that argument for this spiritual resurrection in that way and and it, it is appealing and and has merit but everywhere else we read about the idea of resurrection in the Bible, I think it has to do with a physical, literal resurrection of the dead. And it's, at least in the New Testament, it's always tied with this idea of receiving a brand new body. So I think that this ultimately is painting a picture of the resurrection of the redeemed when Christ comes again. And so, that's my understanding at this point. 
And so that's why I think the Bible calls this the first resurrection and makes a distinction between those who are the rest of the dead and it's those who are part of this first resurrection. And again, if you look at it in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense, you can still make this application here. Those who are part of the first resurrection will not be touched or will not be overcome or the second death has no power over them. So the obvious question that, that, that ought to jump off the page to us is, how do I make sure I'm part of this first resurrection? Well, we're going to answer that uh, at the end uh, when we get to the end of this, uh, this chapter. So I think that's the picture that's being painted here. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, uh, the second death has no power. And we'll, we'll see the second death again, and we'll talk about what that means when we get to the end. Uh, of the chapter where we see it again it says but they will be priests of god and christ and will reign for him with him for a thousand years and again there's that thousand year aspect of it so you know i still if you want to be honest about it at least in my understanding of all millennialism at this time i, I still have a little bit of a muddle theologically right there that i got to work through and understand completely but anyway moving on uh, I've talked about this this uh, two resurrections. Maybe I need to drill down on that for just a second um, because there are only two resurrections in the Bible. There's only mention of two resurrections. Uh, not, a, not a secret one. That, and again, I, I get it. With, with dispensationalism, you have a, you have a uh, rapture resurrection and then you have a second resurrection uh, when Christ comes again and then I'm assuming that would have some sense of a rapture aspect to it uh, in this in the in this sense because if you think about it if you think about dispensationalism and and the secret rapture of the church which includes a resurrection from the dead because in dispensational theology christ comes again and those who are already who have already gone on to be with the lord come with him in the in the clouds and first uh, thessalonians chapter four we are they the dead in christ so those disembodied spirits come with christ and their bodies are raised first and then those who are alive and remain uh, are changed and given a brand new body uh, and uh, that, that parallels to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed because this mortal has to put on immor immortality uh, and so, so on and so forth. So, you know, my thinking about it is if, if you have dispensational theology or eschatology, then you got to have a secret rapture or of the church, which, in which includes a resurrection. Then you've got people who are... Uh, coming to faith in Christ in the millennial reign, and they are the ones that dispensationalists would say, hey, the, those are the martyrs, those are the beheaded ones that we read about here and that we read about in chapter 6. They are being martyred during this tribulation period for their faith in Christ. So they have therefore died, and their bodies have been buried. So when Christ comes again, you have a second resurrection resurrection rapture kind of deal because those dead people come back um, uh, at the end of the tribulation period 
Uh, so at the second coming, those people come back with him. And, and, and you, so you have another raising of the redeemed dead uh, there. So that's two resurrections. And then <clears throat> you would have at the end of that millennial reign, dispensationalists, I believe, would say it's the great white throne judgment, which means you would have a third resurrection of the lost or the unregenerate dead, who, which would include them receiving a, a immortal body as well suited for eternity. So in that sense, you got at least three resurrections. Bible only talks about two resurrections. Even here in Revelation, it says first resurrection, which implies a second resurrection, right? There's only two, and you only see two times that people are raised from the dead in Revelation chapter 20, and you only see one uh, general uh, culmination of the age in Jesus's eschatology and and I think even in Daniel's eschatology, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 is one verse that talks about this idea of two resurrections. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you got two resurrections for the just and the unjust. Paul, uh, I think it's Paul speaking in, in uh, Acts chapter 24, Luke writing, obviously, but Acts chapter 24, verse 15, talks about a resurrection of the just and unjust, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So quite clearly, the Bible only teaches two resurrections. You're, and again, it goes, if it's nicely with this idea that we see in Revelation, Revelation ultimately about two peoples. One God, two peoples, those who have bowed the knee to Christ and those who have not. Those who have bowed the knee to Christ will be part of that first resurrection. Those who have not bowed the knee to Christ will be part of that second resurrection if they die in that, in that state. And you want to be part of that first resurrection because if you're part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power over you and you don't want to experience the second death. We'll talk about that when we get to the last section. So that leads us to uh, verses 7 through 10. And this is where I think we see a clear evidence of recapitulation again, because we have here the battle of Armageddon, which we have already seen at least two other times, I believe, in the book of Revelation. So if we have seen this already in chapter 16 and chapter 19, and we're seeing it again, how can this be something different? It seems as though this is the same story from a slightly different perspective, a different camera angle, a different view. Because listen to what we find in, in Revelation 7, or 27 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, and again, I believe millennial now, at the end of the age, the culmination of the age, right before Christ's return, Satan will be released. His, his, his limiting, his binding will be released, and he'll have full authority to deceive the nation, and as the Bible says in the Gospels, if possible, even the elect. But for the elect's sake, the Lord says that he shortens this time. So Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Again, every geographical location on planet earth, every nation will be deceived. And hey, don't think that does not mean the uh, nation we call America. Uh, it is deceived currently. So uh, they're going to bring them together at Gog and Magog. And we've saw, seen this in chapter uh, 16 uh, of Revelation. And they're going to gather together uh, to battle. 
Their number, these people who are coming, these armies are like the sand of the sea. Now, if we were, if we were, um, you know, Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth, uh, right now in our um, current historical status, we would, we would obviously be looking at Russia and be looking at China, right? These are the great nations, but it, it doesn't limit it to two nations. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Satan is going to deceive the nations, plural, not just two, all the nations. Any nation that can be deceived will be deceived by Satan to come up against uh, God and his people. And we've seen that throughout world history. The nations have been deceived to bring about persecution and tribulation to the people of God. They have been the tool of Satan to try to stop God's redeeming work in this world. And so it says in verse nine, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. <coughs> but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Every time we read about this battle, I mean, it, it, it's this big, massive army of nations that come up against God and his people. And every time we read it in chapter 19, what is what happens in chapter 19? Listen, listen, I'll read it to you. This is what happens. And, I, and this is this is why I say this is recapitulation. It's telling the same story. Listen what happens because Jesus Christ comes in chapter 19. We see him. Uh, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Sounds exactly what we just read in, in chapter 20, verse 7 through 11. In verse 20 in, in chapter 19, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped uh, his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. How long did the battle take? Not long because Christ comes, he seizes uh, the beast and the prophet and he kills everybody else with the sword that comes out of his mouth, this commandment. We talked about that in chapter 19, what that looks like, how I understand that is God using his word to command these things that are happening in the book of Revelation to bring about judgment. And we see another telling of this same story, I think, in chapter 16. It's chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, the nations, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Same exact day we're talking about in Revelation chapter 20. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. Behold is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not be uh, go about naked. Uh, and be seen exposed, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, 
Well, that's what we just what we are just reading about in Revelation chapter twenty. Same exact battle. God wins, right? It's no contest. There's no doubt that God's going to win. There's no doubt that Christ is going to defeat it. You know why? Because we already saw that in Genesis chapter three and verse fifteen. The Satan, the serpent, this dragon will bruise the heel of the promised seed, but the promised seed will bruise the head of the serpent. And he puts down uh, this uh, revolt, if you will, once and for all. And that leads us to the final section of Revelation 20, dealing with this eternal judgment, uh, this great white throne judgment. I've already talked about judgment in Revelation, made the argument that there really is only one judgment, and I believe it is this great white throne judgment. And I get it. We talked about uh, Paul reminds us that believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and that we are going to all be held account accountable for the things that we do. And for those who are believers, those things we do for the glory and honor of God will stand and those things we do for our own selfish ambitions or like wood, hay, and stubble, they'll be burned up as with fire. Uh, but we will give an account. Everyone, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but everybody's judged based on works, right? Uh, and, and judgment's always based on works. Uh, salvation's always based on grace. But I believe all authority has been given to Christ. Judgment has been given to the Son, right? Acts chapter 17, Paul makes that clear that God has is, God is set aside a day of judgment and he has proven that by the one who's going to judge because he raised him from the dead. So judgment's been given to Christ. Christ is going to be the one who judges. Everybody will stand before judgment, Christ's judgment seat. And so that's why I think, again, I, one of the reasons I'm not dispensational, because if you, if you look at the biblical picture of judgment, dispensationalism would say, hey, this, this judgment seat of Christ, that's what goes on while we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, during the tribulation period. But the Bible paints a different picture. Yes, there is this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, but Jesus, when he, when he unfolds his eschatology for us, there's only one judgment where he separates the sheep from the goat, right? We're, we're all standing before the same throne, and there is a great separation on that day. There is a, a judgment and rewards for saints, and there's a judgment and reward for those who are lost. Uh, their, their judgment and reward is that they are ultimately cast into the lake of fire. And I believe this is that same judgment. Now, people will disagree with me on that. But that's the way I think scripture lays out this idea of judgment. And so we see uh, the great white throne in him who uh, was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And it, it talks about the, Im, the Im, immense nature of of God. There's no place in this universe that anyone or anything can be outside of uh, the person uh, in the presence of God. And I get it. There's this isolation in a sense in, in, uh, in hell and there's a sense of separation uh, from God, but it's not absolute separation from his presence uh, in, in that place. Uh, so, uh, verse 12, and I saw dead or saw the dead. This is the rest of the dead. I think, uh, we'll see that term, uh, great and small. I had to highlight those words because it doesn't matter who you are, 
One, if the Lord tarries, it doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter uh, what your bank account is. Everyone will die if Christ tarries. One out of one. There's one out of one. Right? Yeah. We, we read of two exceptions in the Bible. Uh, Elijah and Enoch, who were taken in that sense. Um, but everyone else we read about in history and everyone else you know, one out of one has died. And if Christ continues to tarry, everybody you know around you in a hundred years will be dead. Great or small. It is, it is the enemy that all men must face because of sin. It is the debt that all men must pay because of sin. But praise be to God in Christ Jesus, he overcome death, hell, and the grave, and so can those who bow their knee to Christ. Great and small, no matter who you are, you're, going, you're not going to be able to escape this judgment that is to come. These dead, great and small, stood before the throne, and books were opened. And then... Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Judgment is always about works. It's about those things that you have done. God is keeping a record in these books of what you have done. Good and bad. What you have done. Apart from Christ, you can't do anything good. God's keeping a record. It's written in books. And when judgment day comes, those books will be opened and every human being will be judged by what is written in those books. And here's the, here's the harsh reality. When you are judged by what is written in those books, you will be found guilty. I don't matter, it doesn't matter who you are, great and small. When you are judged by what is written in those books, you will be found guilty because every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us are depraved wretches. Every one of us are in rebellion against God prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when, when I stand before God, and God weighs those things in that those books against his holiness holiness and his righteousness I will be found wanting but praise God that's not the only books that are there there's another book that's open and it is the book of life and you want to be found written in the book of life we've seen the book of life already in revelation uh, on a couple of occasions. We saw it in uh, the, one of the letters to the churches. It's at the end in, in the promise that's given. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We saw the book of life in Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Meaning the beast. Everyone, these are the ones who are going to worship the beast. You ought to meditate on this passage. 
everyone whose name has not been found written before the foundation of the of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain now some translations may render verse uh, verse 8 in chapter 13 slightly differently and there is grammatical evidence that would allow you to render it in this way that those who will worship the beast are the ones whose names have not been found in the book of life of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I think that is a legitimate way to render Revelation 13, 8. But all the ambiguities taken out in Revelation 13, or 17, 8. Because <coughs> in Revelation 17, 8, uh, you, you don't have any wiggle room in the language. And so here's Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And the reason there's no ambiguity there because you have no language in there about the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. This simply says their names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, we don't have time to talk about that again tonight, but you can go back to Revelation 13, Revelation 17, where we talk about that in both of those, those chapters to some degree. But I'm just showing we've seen this book of life, and this book of life is, has an important role in redemptive history. And you want your name to be in this book of life. Revelation 21, 27, we'll see it again. But nothing unclean will enter it, meaning this new city, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth, in that sense, this new city of God. Nothing unclean will enter, will ever enter it, nor anything, anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So man, when you stand before God in judgment, your only hope is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question that ought to pop to your mind is how do I make sure that my name is in the Lamb's book of life? Well, in just a moment, I'm gonna answer that question for you. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Again, I've had people ask me about cremation before, <clears throat> and I've done a whole, whole I've done a podcast or, or Facebook Live on, on, on cremation, uh, whether it is okay for Christians to be cremated. And the obvious answer is yes, it's okay. All right. Uh, I think the way we do burial a lot of times has to do with our tradition, and, and some of it has to do with our uh, eschatology, you know, because we believe that the Lord's coming back in the eastern sky, so we bury people with them facing toward the east, uh, I guess, so it'll be easier for them whenever he comes. Uh, but how do, you, how do you deal with, with the idea of people cre uh, cremated or whatever? Well, the same concept is here in the sea. You know, there are a lot of people throughout the years, uh, throughout history, who have been buried at sea. But what do you think happens to their body if it's buried at sea? Well, it decomposes what the animals don't eat, right? So if God, what I'm saying, if God could take the people from the sea uh, who who's, were buried at sea and he can give them a brand new body, well, any, he can give anybody a brand new body. After all, he created the first man from dirt. 
So he can give you a brand new body. Don't worry about that. But the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And we've talked about uh, death and Hades, Luke chapter 16, uh, the rich man, Lazarus, the narrative that the Lord gives there. And we talked about those two compartments in the Old Testament. Uh, I think that's name is listed as one compartment, Sheol. Uh, and so uh, in the New Testament, we get a little bit bigger picture of, or, or um, a better picture of what that Sheol, the abode of the dead looked like when Jesus talks to the the, uh, the the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, and then we get a great picture of that when Jesus tells us about Lazarus and the rich man where uh, the rich Lazarus goes to be with the bosom of Abraham, which I believe is paradise. And the rich man goes to uh, hell or Hades, uh, Hades, if you want to be correct about it, uh, but Hades. And so I think that is that place that we're talking about. And then Jesus uh, came down, or when Jesus died, it talks about him, Paul, or Peter, I think it is, uses this language about him leading, uh, taking captivity captive. And I think we made the case there. I've done a whole thing on, on death and Hades. You can go look it up. Um, but he takes those who are in the bosom of Abraham in paradise and they go to be with him. He, he takes them out of that compartment. So that compartment is empty. All that's left is Hades right now. Those who are in uh, torment because of the, of them dying in their, in their sinfulness. And so uh, this death in Hades, the only ones that's left are those in Hades. So they give up the dead. They are raised, if you will, to stand judgment before uh, almighty God. And then uh, it goes on to say, and they were judged. And again, not to belabor this verse, already gone an hour and seven minutes, but not to belabor these verses, but it's very important that you hear this, you see this, and you be able to share this with other people. Judgment is coming. You've heard me say this over and over again in Revelation. That is the message we've got to get to the world because the way we do evangelism today, it has... It, it, it tells people nothing about why it is they need to be evangelized, why it is they need to be saved. It, it, it gives no bearing for the good news because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, great. I love me, as Paul Washer says, and have a wonderful plan for my life. So we have something in common. We must tell the people the bad news in order for the good news to be good news. So a lot of people, when we share the gospel, they have no idea the gravity of the situation and why the gospel is, in fact, good news. The reason the gospel is good news is because there is bad news. You are going to be judged. You are going to stand before a holy, righteous God, and you're going to be judged by the things that you have done, and you will be weighed and found wanting. And your punishment would be hellfire for all of eternity. The judgment of God poured out on you for all of eternity. And your only hope is that because of Jesus Christ, you have given your heart and life to him. You bowed your knee to Christ. You placed your faith in him. That you can receive the righteousness of God and be reconciled with God. And you will escape the judgment that is to come. That's why people need to be saved because they need to be saved from God, i.e. the judgment of God. That's what uh, Whitfield's sermon 
sinners in the hand of an angry God is really all about. So, judgment's coming. And then look at these two words. The next two words in the ESV, at least, is each one of them. They were judged each one of them. Again, goes back to great and small. Doesn't matter who you are. Every human being will stand in judgment before God. Everyone, no matter who you are. And they were judged according to what they had done. And I, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to look far in your life. I don't have to look far in my life to see that I have failed to stand up to the righteous requirements of God. And as James tells us, James tells us in his epistle, if we break one part of God's law, then we're guilty of all. And all it takes is one. Because those laws were given by an eternal, holy, righteous God. And when we fail in one count, we have failed immensely. And we are guilty of all. And everyone's going to stand and everyone will be judged by what they do. And if that's all you have, you're going to be found guilty. You must have Christ. Then he goes on to say, uh, in verse 14, uh, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, he explains for us. And Jesus talks about this idea of the lake of fire. He says in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 9, verses 47, 48, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he describes this hell. And I didn't look it up, should have. Uh, maybe the word Gehenna that is there in uh, Mark 9, 47. And he says, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That's hell. That's the lake of fire. It's an eternal place of torment. And it's a personal place of torment. That's why the personal pronoun there is used. It is their worm, their torment. And again, when Jesus is talking about uh, Chorazin, I think it is in the New Testament, he talks about it being more tolerable for, for Sodom and Gomorrah or for them than, than uh, others who have received revelation. So the implication of the pass passage is, is that there are degrees of punishment in hell now i'm not going to dante's inferno kind of idea but there are levels of personal torment in hell based upon each individual do i understand everything i need to know about that no the main point you need to know is judgment's coming if you're guilty you're going to be cast into the lake of fire and you're going to spend all of eternity there there is no parole there there is no hearing it is one and done and you're there if you die in your sins and he goes on in verse 15 and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is your only hope to escape the lake of fire? What is your only hope to escape the judgment of God? It is to have your name found written in the book of life. That ought to be the pressing question on your mind and my mind. 
How do I know that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Because it is those who are part of this first resurrection whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do I make sure that I'm part of this first resurrection? It is those whose names are written in this Lamb's book of life that will not be hurt by the second death. We saw that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, one of those promises at the end of the letters to the churches. In all seven churches, there was this, there was this refrain. And this refrain started with the first half of the letters, to the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, depending on your translation. And then there was a promise given. And then the Bible says to he who has, he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. That refrain was over and over again at the end of those letters for all of those churches, the one who conquers. And in Revelation 2.11, here was the promise given to the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers or overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We've seen that. How do I know that I'm a conquering overcomer so I can be part of that second resur- or first resurrection and not hurt by the second death which is being cast into the lake of fire? Listen to this. Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess him before my father and before his angels. The one who conquers or overcomes, will, will his name will never be blotted out of the book of life. How do I make sure my name is never blotted out of the book of life? How do I make sure my name is in the book of life? How do I become this overcomer? Because that's who the promise is made to, the overcomer, the victor. And that's really the Greek word is nikaon. Uh, nikao uh, is, is the lexical form of it. L- nikao, we, you hear the English word, if you really think about it, uh, Nike. Nike. Uh, it is the idea of victor, overcomer, conqueror. That's the word that is used there. How do I get in that group? That's the group who is part of the second resur- uh, first resurrection and never hurt by the second death. That's the group whose names are in the book of life and they will never be blotted out of the book of life. Therefore, they will never have to suffer the second death. How do I make sure I'm in that group? Well, the Bible answers that question for us. R- write it down, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, really verses 1 through 5. I'm going to only read verses 4 and 5. First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Same author, same exact Greek word. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Well, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about that, didn't he? Didn't he? He said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Being born again is being born of God. How does that happen? How am I part of these overcomers who have been born of God, these ones who have overcome the world? How am I in that group? 
He goes on to say in verse 4, And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here's the victory. Our faith. And that's not just faith in anything. It's a particular faith in a particular person. And then John expressly asked the question that we are asking, how do I overcome? Look at verse 5 in chapter, verse John chapter 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? That's the question that we want to know the answer to. How do I become part of those overcomers I read about in Revelation? Those ones who have promised that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. The ones who are promised that they would never have to suffer the second death. How do I become part of those overcomers and escape the wrath that is to come? He who, he, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? It is our faith in Jesus Christ. How do you come to that place in your life? Paul made it simple for us in Romans chapter 10. What did he tell us? What does it look like to be born again? What does it look like? How, how do we get to that place where we are redeemed and regenerate? Here's what Paul says. You bow the knee to Christ. You confess Christ, right? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Romans 10, 9, and you believe in your heart, in the inner man, that God raised him from the dead, Paul says, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. And really the implication is you've bowed your knee to Christ. Why? Because you confess him as Lord. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's an act of the will. That is you bowing your will to Christ and acknowledging that you're not Lord, but he's Lord. And you believe that he did what he said he did, that he came to redeem humanity. And proof of that is in his being raised from the dead. If you confess the, the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your inner man that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be born again. You will be part of that group of overcomers. And your name will be or will remain or will be in the book of life. That's how you know. So the question set before you today is have you done that? Have you bowed your knee to Christ? Is he not is he he is lord have you bowed your knee to the lord you see that's another aspect of the gospel and i don't have time to preach another sermon it's already gone way too long <laughs> the gospel is not a request it's not god on his knees begging us to come to him no what does paul say paul says that god in these days in these last days he 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 has come to the place he has commanded everyone everywhere to repent it's not a request. It is a command of God. That's why John can write the way he does in John chapter 3. At the end of it, it talks about obeying the Son of God. What does he mean by obey? He means being born again. He means obeying the gospel. It's God's command to you that you bow your knee to Jesus Christ. And when you do not do that, you're in rebellion against God. So, if you want to be part of those overcomers, you bow the knee to Christ. Have you done that? Don't let the sun go down today before you do. 
Well, hope that was uh, encouraging to you. Hope it was beneficial and helpful to you. If you got questions or comments, put them put them in the comments. Uh, shoot me a message or something. Uh, I can't remember if I told you out in in the outset. Uh, we got two more. Uh, I think I did, but I'll tell you again. Uh, two more chapters in Revelation. So we're going to go to Ecclesiastes. And just by the way, for those who who follow us on the podcast or uh, as it relates to the sermon on Sunday morning, uh, we're in Romans. Got probably two more sermons in Romans. I've been over a year that we've been in Romans about to wrap that up. And then we're going to do a series on the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And so, uh, if you're in the area and you don't have a church home, I'd encourage you to come. If you are in a place where you're starving to death theologically, uh, where you're getting, uh, pep talks, uh, rather than, uh, expositional sermons from scripture, then uh, come join us because we teach God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter in an expositional way. Uh, and come join us. We're going to start that series in just a few weeks in, on the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But listen to us. I'll post them up uh, every time. Every Sunday I post up the Sunday sermon. When I get off here just in a few minutes, I'm going to go and post them up on the podcast and post them up on YouTube and uh, Rumble. So go again, find, like, subscribe, uh, and share. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.